Welcome to Beyond the Anchor, a place to get to know the experiences, hobbies, and passions of our Delta Gamma sisters beyond what binds us together, our beloved anchor. Today, I'm your host, Callie Maxwell. I am an initiate of the Gamma Phi chapter at Arizona State University. Today, I'll be chatting with longtime friend, Mark Ashton, who's also the CEO of the Foundation for Blind Children. We will be discussing our mutual experience in navigating an autism diagnosis with our children. Mark, uh, you're pretty well known amongst the members of the Phoenix Alumni Group, but for those that don't know you, why don't you take a moment and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, thank you for that great introduction, Callie. We've known each other for quite a few years. Um, I am uh, Mark Ashton. I'm the CEO of the Foundation for Blind Children. I have two special needs children, which I'll be talking about shortly. Um, I went to ASU and I am a Fiji there. And I married a Kappa Kappa Gamma. So please don't hold that against me. She's Lisa's a great, great woman. And um, I have uh, I'm, have two wonderful kids. Um, Allison is 29 and Max is 25. And Max is about to turn 26 and is about to get married. And Max, um, and we're very excited for him. But we're here to talk today about Allison, which is unusual for me because I am the CEO of the Foundation for Blind Children, but I also have an autistic daughter. So. Um, and you have a DJ connection. Can you tell us a little bit about that? My my DG connection is pre-me. That's my mom. She was a Delta Gamma at ASU. And um, she, believe it or not, she read um, for blind students at ASU when she was a, um, a Delta Gamma there. And lo and behold, 30 some odd years later, she has a blind grandson. So it's amazing how the world works that way sometimes. It sure is. It sure is. Uh, well, for those listening that don't know me, uh, as I said before, I'm Callie Maxwell. I was a Gamma Phi at Arizona State University. I am also a proud um, big sister to my mother, who is an alumni initiate. Um, and it's been a joy to have that experience together. I, too, have uh, a, con a connection to Delta Gamma. Um, that I didn't really expect going through recruitment because I have a visual impairment. Uh, I really, ha I have amblyopia and I really only use one eye. So when I was going through recruitment, um, the foundation really spoke to me. And little did I know that working with the foundation would eventually equip me for what was coming later in life, which we'll talk about in a minute. So uh, Delta Gamma has played a, a very large role in my life. I'm also a lawyer. I do medical malpractice defense and I have two, a wonderful husband. Uh, and two little boys, one that's two and a half and one that's four and a half. And we will be talking about the four and a half year old today. So. All right, Mark, can you tell us about Allison? Uh, tell us what it, just about her generally, where how old she sure. is, what she likes to do. Sure. Allison is 29 and um, she works. She does. She's. On the autism spectrum, and she also has some other delays. And she uh, works at uh, goes to a day program called Civitan, which is for adult uh, for adults with special needs. But she also has been working at Harkins Movie Theaters for eleven years, and um, she has lots of friends. She spends a lot of time on the phone. She's like an internal middle school 
girl. That's kind of what she um, reminds that all the time. Uh, but she is very healthy. She uh, rides horses with horses help. Um, she goes a young life. Um, she loves babies. She loves puppies. And she loves birthdays. So um, she's just a really, really sweet um, adult now. But we've been blessed with her. Wonderful. Well, um, I don't think you've gotten to meet Jackson, but Jackson is four and a half, as I said before. Um, he is incredibly smart. He's already spelling words like pumpkin and penguin, and uh, he loves letters and numbers. He, more than anything in life, he loves animals. And I think uh, his mom and his grandma had something to do with that. Um, but he is a very happy, loving, sweet little boy. He. Um, doesn't always know what to do with friends, but he's interested in friends and wants to meet friends. Um, so he, we, we hope for big things with him. So, um, yeah. So based on that, um, I will, I will say that at two and a half, he had several challenges that have, uh, led us to get a diagnosis before I get into those. Can you tell me, Mark, what, led you to seek a diagnosis for Allison and, and what age she was at? Well, yeah. So Allison early on, kind of like what you said around two, um, two and a half, she was really speech delayed. She couldn't put words together. She could say words and things like that, but she, um, it was just speech delayed. We couldn't understand what was going on. She couldn't form complete thoughts. Like you just mentioned penguin. She couldn't say, the, she couldn't remember the word penguin, but she could remember a swimming bird. So she can get the concept, but she couldn't put the word to it. Um, she slept a lot. She was delayed in potty training, but she was very, very sweet and, and just enjoyable child. But she, that speech delay was, that's what triggered us to say something's going on. And that's when we started reaching out for help and trying to get her a diagnosis. Sounds familiar. Um, we yeah. had major speech delay. We had no words whatsoever. Uh, at least at two, beyond two. Well, um, Jackson also tend to run in circles. Um, he would walk on his tiptoes. Uh, he was very repetitive, um, but not in the traditional sense that you think about when you hear about autism. He wasn't doing a lot of flapping or things like that. But just doing tasks over and over, listening to sound books and pushing the same sound over and over, or even just not playing with toys in an appropriate manner. We were playing with them, but in strange ways, instead of rolling the car on the floor, we're picking it up and spinning the wheel. Um, but I think the main reason we decided to get Jackson tested was the speech play. And Fast forward, we really didn't get meaningful words out of Jackson until he was almost four. So um, I'm glad we didn't wait. We uh, we proceeded with it uh, shortly after his second birthday. So um, yeah, and that's that's very typical. I mean, as you know, Callie, now that it's 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 the um, the typical development milestones that they aren't meeting, and you're like, what's going on, and what, why is that happening? That kind of triggers you to seek help because what is going on with Allison, it was the same thing. Speech was our, our alert to that. Now I I'm, 
I'm fairly certain you're pretty familiar with the autistic community now that you've been going through it for years. But uh, I, as you know, females are often diagnosed far less often than males. Um, and they're often diagnosed much later. So, you know, just from my perspective, it's great that you all had the forethought to get a diagnosis early because it sometimes doesn't happen for young ladies, particularly when they have some speech. Well, that's, that's, I'm glad you said that because to be fair and frank, we didn't get her diagnosed until she was 18. Oh, okay. We had her, she had many other diagnoses before. Um, and we, we went through, I mean, speech delay got her into the, the school system, Paradise Valley School District. They had a great speech delay program that we got her in for preschool. And we went to many doctors and therapists and we got, Speech delay was our first diagnosis. Then what used to be called mild mental retardation was our second diagnosis. Um, she, and then it wasn't until high school. And then when we learned, don't forget, this is 27 years ago. So the autism world wasn't what it is today, where it's so well known and so well studied. And so we didn't see, we didn't pick up on the... Um, the aspects of, 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 of her of autism until later in life. And that wasn't until she was in high school, we started asking more questions. And that's finally when we got the true diagnosis of autism. So that so. leads me into the next topic perfectly, which is the actual diagnosis. And you bring up a good fact that um, diagnosis of autism has changed dramatically, I think over the seven year, 70 year history. Now that I have a son, I've I have a pretty good knowledge of the history, but it's changed dramatically in recent years. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what the process was like in getting your, your daughter diagnosed? So we, we had been going to, you're with SARC. I mean, you're familiar with SARC and we, we've been working with Melmed, who's a big part of um, SARC and Melmed Center. And to be frank, Allison didn't have those typical she did, she did some repetitive things, but it was more um, socially repetitive. So she would say the same story over and over again. And, and she couldn't take social cues from people she was talking to. Um, and so those type of things didn't manifest. So later until, and then when we, when the um, general world started telling us about these things, you know, you'd read on the news and what have you, we're like, oh my God, that's Allison. And then that's when we went back to SARC actually, and, and got a real diagnosis of autism. And um, yeah, and, and it's just, as you, as everybody is aware, maybe that's part of this reason this podcast is not everybody's aware, but there's a wide range of autistic diagnoses or, or the spectrum, I guess. And Allison just fit on the very tip of that, Asperger's part of it. And, and she doesn't even have a lot of Asperger's Symptoms, in other words, she's very social, and a lot of autistic kids don't have very good social skills um, or that social gene, I should say. And uh, but she just doesn't have doesn't accept social cues all the time. And but other than that, she has to be very regimented. She repeats a lot. She remembers birthdays, but she can't remember what a chore list. You know, she can remember. I mean, if, if we were sitting here and everybody who's watching or listening to give us a, your birthday, she would remember every one of them. She just has that little, you know, like we always say, little quirks about that. And that's, that's great. And um, she remembers everybody's baby's names. 
just all that kind of stuff. So it was a really different world for us because we didn't know what it was. And, and now, now we do. So for us, it started at Jackson's 18 month appointment. Um, the doctor had us fill out a form. I know everybody with young kids now fills out this form. And I had already been reading books about childhood development and knew what should be happening. So I had some suspicions, but she, our pediatrician said, you know, I, I'm concerned about this. You should look into this. And so it's not news that any family wants to hear. So it took us a bit to process it, to really take it seriously and, and dive in. So at 27 months, we got him diagnosed um, by Young Minds, which is a wonderful place. Um, it's a school and a, and a diagnostic center. Um, but, you know, for a lot of people nowadays, there's a much higher awareness of autism. So there's a much longer line to get a diagnosis. You can wait up to six months to get a diagnosis uh, these days. And so actually start has recently created a program where if they can't die, if they don't have time in their schedule with one of their psychologists to diagnose you, they will refer you out to a network of, of providers. Because as you probably know, Mark, the research shows that the early develop, early intervention is the best thing for children. So waiting six months, even though it doesn't seem like that long when a child is two and a half, those are critical months that you can't get back. And so um, we waited a bit for our appointment. Once we got it, uh, we went in, we had to sit with the psychologist, watch her do things. We got interviewed by the psychologist. We filled out a lot of paperwork. Ever since I've become an autism mom, I feel like my second job is paperwork. Um, and then she came back and, and told us that obviously Jackson was autistic. Um, nowadays, it is a spectrum. As you said, there are no true Asperger's diagnosis versus, uh, uh, you know, non-Asperger's and they just level them level one, two, three, three being the most severe. And unfortunately for us, because Jackson was completely nonverbal, uh, we were level three, uh, which was tough. It was a really tough moment, which leads me to my next question for you, Mark, um, which was how did the diagnosis impact you and your wife? Um, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between. Well, I think with anybody who has a special needs child or, or someone who's a little different, um, it can be tough, but I always feel like it's a blessing. And, and I think the good, you want to go with the good, the bad, the ugly, the good is it gave Lisa and I purpose. It made us better parents. It prepared us for when our son Max came along who was blind, that we knew this is going to be a different path. Um, and we just knew Allison was going to be different. We just, and accepting that early is helpful. And I think that's why early intervention is so important is because it's not just a child who needs that um, extra intervention early, it's the parents. Parents have to, um, we always say, when you hear that news, first you have to grieve. It is a loss. Um, then you have to get through that grief and then you have to say, okay, now what do we do? And acceptance of, of that is one of the most important things. There's, there's, we have a lot of parents here, um, especially of, of certain um, ethnicities who don't want to accept it. And it's, they ignore 
vision loss or whatever the diagnosis is. And that acceptance is really important for young parents just so they can then start working, marching towards that great life with the child. Um, the bad we had early on was Allison has cousins that are, her, you know, we have nieces and nephews that were her age. And it's really hard when you see those children developing typically and your child's not. And it's, it's, it's always becomes a comparison. It's a social aspect of being human beings. We're always comparing. And when she wasn't developing like them, then you really get hurt and you, they don't understand. So they can't really help you because they're all new parents as well. And um, it got really hard when Max, who's four years younger than her, are developing and passing her in developments because that's really hard to see a young, uh, younger sibling all of a sudden passing her. Um, and it was some of the Al- Allison's things were inconsolable breakdowns. She would have these temper tantrums, and they weren't temper tantrums in the sense that she wanted something. She would just be crushed about something. And she would break down. You couldn't console her. One of my biggest memories is we're Catholic and our parents, uh, after Max was born and Max was about a year old, took us to Lourdes, which is in um, France, which is a holy site. And the flight there, it was a beautiful time. And we we got to do all the things in Lourdes and, and bathe in the, in the baths and all that. But when on the way home, we were flying home on this long flight, you can imagine. And we found met this other young family, and Allison was playing this little other family little girl for like three hours. And it was great, but then it was time for her to take a break and get some rest. And when we separated her from that girl, Allison broke down, and we could not console her. And we I ended up having to take her into the restroom because she was crying so loud and all that. And those are the type of things that have happened over time, and that's that's the bad. I mean, that's just the ugly. I mean, it's just, you don't know how to handle it. And it's, um, especially as a young parent, especially on a, wherever you are, a crowded plane or anything, it's, you can imagine what the uh, torment of that is. And, um, and we just didn't understand it at that time. We didn't understand we had to, be, we were breaking her routine. We were, and she didn't understand that. So but we didn't understand that. We've learned that since and we don't, we try to keep her on a pretty strict re- routine now. Yeah, I can't believe you're, uh, I understand that you didn't know back then. I have not been brave enough to take my children on a plane. It will be quite a long time before I, I tackle that for the reasons you just mentioned. You can't get off the plane. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think our initial feelings were fear and anxiety because you just don't know what the future holds. And you had these ideas as a parent about, you know, all the things you do with your kids. And all of a sudden, it seems like all of that could be gone. Um, fortunately, um, I do think I started volunteering with the Foundation for Blind Children when I was in college. And I remember specifically um, being at an event. I can't remember. It was a collegiate event, though, where you were there and you read a poem. and. Uh, I'm going to share it with everybody right now. Um, But that poem, just fast forward, I get a diagnosis, my world's flipped upside down, and a friend that's not a Delta Gamma just happens to forward me this poem. And 
it just brought me back to um, that I could get through it, that we can do this. Um, but initially, of course, feelings of sadness, fear of the unknown. And of course, what you talked about, the grief. I mean, and you feel guilt about the grief. And you shouldn't feel guilt about the grief, but you do because you love your kids. Regardless of what they can and cannot do, you still feel that grief. So this is Welcome to Holland by Emily Pearl Kingsley. I'm often asked to describe the experience of raising a child with a disability to try to help people who have not shared that experience to understand it. To imagine how it would feel. It's like this. When you're going to have a baby, it's like planning a fabulous trip to Italy. You buy a bunch of guidebooks and you make wonderful plans. The Colosseum, the Michelangelo, the gondolas. You may learn some handy phrases in Italian. It's all very exciting. After months of eager anticipation, the day finally arrives. You pack your bags and off you go. Several hours later, the plan lands. The stewardess comes on and says, welcome to Holland. Holland, you say? What do you mean, Holland? I signed up for Italy. I'm supposed to be in Italy. All my life, I've dreamed of going to Italy. But there's been a change in the flight plan. They've landed in Harlem, and there you must stay. The important thing is that they haven't taken you to a horrible, disgusting, filthy place full of pesticides, famine, and disease. It's just a different place. So you must go, and you must buy new guidebooks, and you must learn a whole new language and you will meet a whole new group of people you would never have met. It's just a different place. It's slower paced than Italy. It's less flashy than Italy. But after you've been there a while, you catch your breath, you look around and you begin to notice that Holland has windmills. Holland has tulips and Rembrandts. But everyone you know is coming and going from Italy and they're all bragging about what wonderful time they had in Italy. And for the rest of your life, you will say, yes, that's where I was supposed to go. That's what I had planned. And the pain of that will never, ever go away because the loss of a dream is a very significant loss. But if you spend your life, and this is the most important part, but if you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't go to Italy, you may never be free to enjoy the very special and very lovely things in Holland. Um. So that poem has had a major impact on me, not only in my volunteering through Delta Gamma, but also in navigating feelings associated with a diagnosis. And eventually the feelings of grief and sadness, they turn into acceptance and they turn into strength and hope. And you learn tools to figure out what to do, but it can be a long time. And so for anyone that's out there, whether it's a friend of someone, a family member, Um, or a parent, you know, be patient and give yourself grace. Let yourself breathe. Let yourself feel those feelings because you can't move on to that next step if you don't. Um, and, And I think you touched on this, Mark. Every person with autism has different struggles. So that's part of the fear of the unknown. You don't know what's coming. Some people can speak fluently, but are severely impacted by sensory issues such as loud noises or flashing lights. Others can only repeat what they hear. Some have major sleeping problems that spill into other areas of their life. Some have difficulty eating a variety of foods. Some have difficulty transitioning from one activity to another. And routine, as you talked about, is, you know, 
critical. Um, some can speak, some cannot speak at all, but have no sensory problems and they only seek additional input sensory-wise. Some feel comfortable being alone because they have social struggles. Others want to be part of groups, but they just don't know how to interact. Um, and they often violate verbal, physical, or social norms because they just don't understand what those norms mean. And some are incredibly smart and gifted in a particular area or hobby. And every person is different. So not all therapies will work for everyone. <laughs> and so it, it, it's a really unsure path forward. And, no presentation with autism would be complete without some fussing in the background. That is our lives. So, <laughs> and that is happens every day. So, yes. So um, after you get the diagnosis, then what, Mark? What did you guys do? Well, I think you. I think welcome to Holland is is critical. I mean that. I read that to my first Delta Gamma gathering, and it was at somebody's house and. I think, and obviously you were there. And so, and you had no idea 10 years later or however many years later that this was going to impact your life. But I think the first important thing is community. Reach out, look around, find out what's out there. Um, depending on how old your child is, find a specialist. Um, and as soon as they turn three, actually before three, you can, there's a lot of services within the state and a lot of services once they turn three with the school districts. and School districts are your first resource, and but you have to find. This is one of the most important things that I've learned in my career as a in my life with Max and Allison is you have to find other parents. You have to find people who have gone through this already, because they will accept you. They will give you the tips of the the tricks of the trade. They will tell you the best doctors, and they will become your for lack of a better term, your your other soccer moms, you know, everybody else meets their friends and fit and families through soccer teams or whatever, or Girl Scouts, what have you. And you sometimes we're not going to have that, so we need that social connection with people who understand where we are, and that's that's the first critical thing is to find that community, and, um, and then hopefully there's a bigger community like SARC or the Foundation for Blind Children that'll um, start giving you the answers you need. Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more. We got diagnosed in Young Minds, which is a great community in and of itself. It's a free school. Um, unfortunately, they were full, which was devastating at the time. Uh, it was just like a blow after a blow. Um, but um, we networked, we found um, through our actual preschool, because Jackson um, couldn't continue in his current preschool, but they could connect us to Sark. And this is where I have to give my a big plug to SARC, which is Southwest Autism Research and Resource Center. I mean, they are, they should be everybody's first call. If, if you have someone in your life, whether it's your child or your friend's child, they should be the first call. They, they offer services for young children all the way up through adulthood. They offer employment um, strategies, social, um, social interaction coaching for teenagers, the gamut. They help you navigate the different state resources, such as the developmental uh, Department of Developmental Disabilities and, and all of those things. So SARC really becomes um, a great, a great resource. And they do have a preschool. They have a community school 
where um, it's about 15 kids in each class, five have a diagnosis and 10 are typical. And everybody always asks me, what do we call kids that don't have a diagnosis? I don't want to say normal. It, so the politically correct term is typical for those that are not aware. I was unaware of that until I lived this life. Um, but anyway, five diagnosed children and 10 typical kids in each class. Uh, it's been a great experience and they go all the way up through pre-K. But I also have to echo your sentiments about finding other autism parents. I found a fantastic group on Facebook full of parents that have autistic children. And it's just a platform to vent without judgment and to get ideas. I mean, I was in Sedona uh, when Hart Jackson was probably three and a half and Paw Patrol was in the movie theaters. And, and Jackson is just in love with Paw Patrol. So I'm like, you know, we're in Sedona. It's a small town. Maybe I should brave it. We've never been to a movie before. And I was just like, no, I'm crazy to even attempt it. So I, I posted something on the Facebook group. And sure enough, not only did I have about 400 cheerleaders from all over the country saying, no, you have to go. you got to do it. But this is how you do it. You sit in the back. You sit on the end. If your son has problems with sound, bring headphones and just this litany of suggestions that had I not asked, I, I would never have known. And so we go to the movie and we do all those things. And we ended up sitting on the back in the floor for probably the last half of it. But we made it. and We watched the whole movie. So that parent group is is critical and um, finding it through school or, or online um, is, is really, really critical. And I think it's another important thing about SARC. And, and part of part of organizations like SARC is they bring those families together. They they link you to those families sometimes in an underage group, et cetera. And what I always think about because I Denise Resnick founded SARC and she is a parent. She's like you and I, and you know, whatever it was 25 years ago, whatever she she has an autistic son. She goes, I, and there's nothing for my son. I mean, the, the, the government's great, but the government just does the bare minimum required by law, which is fantastic that we live in a country that has bare minimum. Um, but organizations like SARC and Foundation for Blind Children, we, we're the extra help that government can't provide. And we're private nonprofits. And it's things like, this is why the, Delta Gamma Foundation exists, right? To help organizations like ours do that extra. And, and honestly, we wouldn't, you don't have SARCs in every city. You don't have Foundation for Blind Children in every city. And there's so many places that just based on your zip code, you don't get these great services. You don't get those resources. And you talk about being on an island. I mean, that is much more difficult and so I, I agree. I think finding your community, finding your experts, even with Max, our son who's blind, you got to go to five doctors before you got a diagnosis. And so it's even in a, even with a diagnosis like blindness, you think that would be a pretty easy one to get. It's it's difficult. So you can imagine on the, the autism world how difficult that can be. So keep reaching out, find the find the answers. That's what you got to do. All right, so that um, leads me to uh, uh, some things that I've noticed, and, and I just want to get your take on this. I've seen a lot of parallel between 
the autistic community and the blind or visually impaired community. And they're not the same and I'm not trying to equate them in any way. But uh, DG is very focused on serving the visually impaired. And so I think this will help in aid it, you know, our listeners understanding. So do you see any parallels, Mark, between the two communities? I absolutely do see parallels. And don't, the one thing I have to remind everybody is um, the blind community or blindness, let's just call it blindness for now, just to make it easy. This has been around for eons, right? We're, blindness is in the Bible, right? Autism is not in the Bible. Well, autism is relatively new, but we have, um, the blind community has been around and we've been trying to solve problems for decades and decades and decades. And the biggest push came after World War I when the soldiers came back from trench warfare and the only thing was sticking up outside the trench was their heads. So you can imagine the trauma to their vision when they got shot and that's when it started to become a push. And so we've got a hundred years of pushing behind us. And when people first came back, they, or even back in the forties and fifties, people didn't hire blind people. You couldn't even go to public school if you were born. So with autism, I think autism, although it's moving much quicker because of modern communication, people don't believe that autistic people with autism can do things. And even in the last, I would say five or eight years, we're discovering that even a child with severe social um, deficiencies, though some of those are becoming the best software engineers out there, they're discovering these ads for autistic um, adults, I guess I should say. And so nothing's impossible. I mean, I think within 10 years, 15 years, by the time Jackson is ready to go to work, there may be a whole world out there, or he may be highly sought after if he can program a computer and software and making very good money. I mean, in the blind community, we have doctors and lawyers and judges and business owners. And my son is the archivist for the House of Representatives. He's in charge of every piece of paper that goes to the House of Representatives here in Arizona. And he can't see one thing. So anything's possible. And I think that's the biggest parallel with autism in the blind community. Uh, it's just believing in the possibilities and, and knowing they can get there. I mean, Allison works and she loves working and it has to be very um, routine and what have you, but she goes to work unsupervised and it's, it's awesome. Yes. Well, I think that's very hopeful. It gives me hope. Um, and you know, I do believe that that society will advance and, and that it will become easier and more accepting uh, for members of the autistic community. The things I've personally um, noticed is that members of the visual impairment community and autistic community really have trouble understanding the world around them with their five sentences. Mm -hmm. five sentences. Um, the autistic community may be able to see, but they can't understand those social cues. The, vis the visually impaired community community can't see the virtual visual cues at all. And wow. so there's just a major social breakdown that can create some pretty big barriers there. Um, social struggles, feelings of isolation and feeling like they can't relate. So that's kind of the one that I've kind of cued in on and, and also sensory therapy, uh, whether it's feeling braille or feeling textures or, um, 
you know, we, a lot of the things that the therapists for SARC bring over, I'm like, well, I bet you they could use these for blind children too. And so there's a lot of parallels that I've seen um, just through my experience being an autism mom for about two years. So Yeah. And, and, and it's, as you're probably aware, but a lot of our children are multiply diagnosed. So a lot of, a lot of our students have autism, some are deaf and blind, some have multiple impairments. And so there's, we have great physical therapists, occupational therapists that understand that crossover, that, you know, we I have to get this child to, to explore with their fingers, but they are, they don't want to touch anything. Right. And so it's, how do you get over that? that that world that, that hump and um so yeah it's i think it's there's a lot of similarities i mean just like you read earlier the the poem from holland i'm a parent you're a parent it's just you know your child i always equated to your child plays baseball and mine's a ballerina we both have different worlds but they're both doing something right i don't know anything about baseball and you don't know anything about ballet but we're still parents of raising kids in this world. So um, it's, it's just a different world. So Mark, is there one thing that you can tell other people um, that don't have any exposure to autism that um, no friends, no families, no, uh, no exposure at all. One thing that people can do to make life easier for autistic families. Is there anything you can think? I thought a lot about this and I, I think the biggest thing is is um, be polite, be empathetic, be patient. That a child is, may not be throwing a tantrum because the parents have raised him poorly. It may be because of other things, and understand that. I go back to that that plane. Elisa and I, we always go right when you get on Southwest Airlines and find your seat. We always find the seat next to that young family or that that mother with a child because we know it's going to be if a business person sits next to her that it's going to be a miserable trip for her. We sit down next to her and we'll say, "Hey, we get it. Don't let it. Don't worry if your child screams or kicks the back of the chair or what have you. We get it, and and um, it's okay. We understand, and we're we've been through it. You definitely." Uh the words right out of my mouth i think um the biggest thing is don't judge because you don't know what's going on you have no concept of why anyone is doing what they're doing and simple act of kindness go a long way um you brought up the temper tantrum i, mean, I have a, a, a perfect example jackson and i were checking out he was sitting in the cart and he was having an absolute fit and there was nothing i could do to fix it and i've had two different experiences one, the clerk looks at Jackson and goes, oh, well, if you were my grandson, you wouldn't be acting that way. And I just looked at her and I, being defensive mom, was like, oh, so your son has a grandson has autism? And she immediately just buttoned her lip and that was it. But about other situations where I'm checking out and Jackson is having a meltdown. And instead of making a comment, the clerk tries to hand him something to distract him or asks him about the books he's reading or engages him even in the slightest way. And all of a sudden he's distracted. And it's just that simple act of kindness. And it's hard to do. And I don't blame people. Being patient is not easy. 
<laughs> but you just never know. You never know that adult in the park that's walking in circles and flapping their arms. You might think, wow, they're mentally unstable or wow, they might be on something that that might not be the case. And so you just never know. And giving people the benefit of the doubt, I think, is the most important thing that you can do. Um, and how hard really is how hard is it to distract that child for that 45 seconds it takes for you to get your credit card out and pay for the, the bill? I mean, it's I, I agree. That's one thing it's taught me is that I can I can either for a parent who's struggling for that moment or for that lifetime. And that's what we do. And that's what you're doing today, Callie. Oh, well, a lot of parents are. listening. <laughs> All right. Well, that was everything that I had covered. Tina, do you have any questions or does anyone listening have any questions for us? I know we've covered a lot. <laughs> All right. So we don't have any questions in the chat. So nothing from our listener audience, but... We like to wrap up each of our podcasts with a similar question so that we can see everybody's responses to those across all of our podcasts. And so, Mark, our question that we didn't give you in advance, okay. and it's worded, I'm going to reword it a little bit for you, but I'm going to give you the straight question first, what we would typically ask. So typically we would ask, what advice would you give your younger Delta Gamma self? So we're kind of trying to tie it all back to DG somehow. And I think for you, I think the question would really be, what advice would you give your, uh, why don't we do this? What advice would you give your younger Fiji self? <laughs> I, I'm about to, I'm going to speak to the Fijis in April and I'll tell you exactly. What I'm this world is bigger than yourself. And even at a young age, especially college age, which is a lot of fun. All you got to do is take that one moment, right? And I'll give you a great example. We had Fiji's here last week and they were building a garden and they were digging up dirt and hauling dirt. And I could tell these are all 19 year old kids and they were hot and it was a Saturday morning and who knows what they did Friday night before. And so it was probably a big struggle. And they, I'm sorry, it was a Friday morning and I could tell they were struggling. And so I just, I walked out a young man named Elijah and from our school and said, Elijah's never held a shovel before. He doesn't know what a wheelbarrow is. I go, would you guys teach him? And they took that minute and a half and let him hold a shovel, let him dig a hole or dig some dirt, old dirt, put it in the wheelbarrow. And then Elijah went back to class and I said, that's it. You guys have done this. You'll never forget this moment way into adulthood. And it's just that one little piece of kind of kindness that'll remember that. And I think it ties back to my mom. She read books for blind students at ASU. And she, and she didn't have to do that. And that was just her way of giving back. And lo and behold, her son's running one of the largest blind organizations in the country. So she planted some good seeds. Yes, she did. We are so grateful for her. <laughs> All right. So, Callie, your question is, what advice would you give your younger Delta Gamma self? Um, 
I would say live it up and have a great time. Uh, but pay attention, similar to Mark, pay attention to the little things. Pay attention to that speech at Founders Day when you don't, don't feel so good and you wish you weren't there. Because fast forward 10, 15 years, it could, it could mean the world to you. Uh, pay attention to the opportunities you had to work with people who needed help. Because someday you may need that help. And, and you'll be grateful you did it. So it, it's really easy to focus on the parties and school and friends, but Delta Gamma provides a really well-rounded experience of community service and leadership that you just can't get anywhere else. And if you're not paying attention, you might miss it. So that would be my Thank you. All right, Callie, go ahead and wrap up. All right. So um, I really want to thank you, Mark, for taking the time to speak with us today. I, I know this is a topic near to both of our hearts. And, um, you know, I, uh, during a meeting earlier this year, we were sharing what the Foundation for Blind Children was doing during COVID. And it really touched me because Sark was doing the same thing for me. Um, so to spend today talking to you about this, it, it really does mean a lot to me. I also want to thank everyone who is here listening today and is going to be listening to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed learning about the autism spectrum and that you can take what we've said uh, here today and, and use it going forward. And I personally want to emphasize that if anyone in the audience has a family member or friend struggling with this or just needs someone to talk to that... Um, my information is widely available through the Phoenix Alumni chapter and I welcome it. I had several people in my life say, hey, I don't have autism in my family, but I know this person, do you wanna to talk to them? And I did, and it helped. Um, so I'm willing to do that and I'm willing to be that connection. So uh, also please invite your friends and family to subscribe and follow Beyond the Anchor on whatever platform they listen to our podcast. I look forward to the next episode where we dive deep and learn more about another member's passion. Thanks again.